Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Discussion around consent and sexual violence experienced by girls and women in the context of educational institutions and the toxic culture engendered by these institutions has been a topic that has dominated headlines in recent years. It's a discussion that is slowly filtering its way into high school curriculums and hopefully leading to a change in what young women and men think of as healthy, respectful sexual encounters and relationships. And in a critically acclaimed debut novel called Love and Virtue, recently published by Ultimate Press, author Diana Reid is contributing to that ongoing discussion with a fascinating work that explores this and other issues in the context of a contemporary university setting. A book that will challenge our notions of material wealth and morality, consent and context, along with how we decide what is right or wrong in any particular situation. A fascinating read on so many levels, listeners, and I'm delighted to have the chance to speak with author Diana Reid on the podcast today. Welcome, Diana. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Congratulations on the publication of your debut novel. Now, it's been out for a couple of months, so I'm guessing you have a fair idea of how the book has been received by the reading public. Has it met or exceeded your expectations? Um, well, I think it has wildly exceeded my expectations because I, I sort of never expected it to be published at all. So, um, yeah, just like the mere fact of anyone um, other than me reading it is is great. Um, and then for it to, um, it, I've been very fortunate and it's, I guess, quite well received today um, by both readers and um, also other authors who I admire. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you expected all of that, you would be insane. So, yeah, I've just been incredibly fortunate. <laughs> Fantastic. Before I started reading Love and Virtue, I hadn't read any reviews and I didn't really know what the book was about. And the email I received from the lovely Emily Cook at Ultimo Press had the heading, are you a good person or do you just look like one? (laughs) A question that could not fail to pique my curiosity. Now, Michaela is very young and Michaela's the, the protagonist in this book and the book explores so many big issues. So tell me about your inspiration to write this novel. What was it that set you down the path to writing about Michaela and her story? Well, the book is a campus novel. So it's um, set at a university and it follows the twisty friendship between Michaela and her brilliant friend Eve in their first year at university. So I think the inspiration for the book sort of came out of the idea that I of the genre. So I knew I wanted to write a book set at an Australian university and that was for two reasons. Um, so the first one is, I guess, personal, which is that I had just left university. So I wrote it, I graduated at the end of 2019 and then I wrote the book in 2020. So that culture, yeah, so although it's a work of fiction, that culture and that kind of social environment was very fresh to me. Um, And then the other reason is, I suppose, more like artistic, and that is that I really like reading campus novels. So some of my favourite books include like The Secret History or Brideshead Revisited or the Sally Rooney novels, and they are all set at universities and they use, I guess, campus life as a way to explore kind of abstract ideas 
that also affects the characters' personal lives. I had noticed that there wasn't really a, an Australian contribution to that genre or I wasn't conscious of there being a, a sort of big Australian book set at a university. So I kind of, yeah, sort of saw a gap that I as a reader would like to see filled. I must say that I didn't even realise it was a genre per se, campus fiction. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like a sub-genre of the kind of coming-of-age or Bildungsroman novel. It's quite big in the US and the UK, I guess, because culturally, especially in the US, going to college is very important there. But yeah, I guess, like, yeah, any book set at uni where the characters like mature is a campus novel. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay, so Diana, for readers who haven't yet read your book, can you tell me a little bit more about it? So Love and Virtue looks at consent, power and sex through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. Um, And they both study philosophy and they learn both inside and outside the classroom about what it means to be a good person. You mentioned briefly that, you know, you are Sydney based or you attended uh, the University of Sydney where you graduated with an arts law degree. And although in your book, I don't think you actually name the university that Michaela attends. I think it's fair to say that it's modelled on Sydney University, right? Yes, that's correct. So it's not, I think the reason I didn't name it is because I wanted um, it to, uh, my ambition for it was that it would speak to people's experiences of that first year of like semi-adulthood where you go to university and you make a lot of mistakes and you grow up very quickly. And so I didn't want it to be sort of um, too tied to a particular place. But yeah, it is very much based on on my, it's not, it's not sort of autobiographical in the sense that I'm nothing like the narrator and the events and the people in the book are all made up, but it's very much based on a setting that I was familiar with. Yeah. I guess I just wondered, because for me, and I didn't go to Sydney University, for me, it was recognisably Sydney University. So I wondered why that instead of, you know, making up a fictional campus. Um, Well, I think that um, part of the reason is, I suppose I just wanted to have a Bob each way. One reason is because um, the book looks at class and how class and privilege interplay with um, our idea of what it means to be good. And so for that reason, I needed it to be at an institution that was recognisably, um, I guess, in quotes, prestigious, because that kind of situates the characters in a particular class. And I think that in Sydney, that institution is Sydney University. And even just architecturally, things like the sandstone kind of convey that sense of prestige, because I think we have like a, a cultural narrative around what prestige means. And, and for us, that's what it looks like. But then on the other hand, I, I didn't want it to be read as an attack on these institutions. And I didn't want the kind of conversations around the books to be about whether or not I, as the author, was fair in my depiction of these real places. I wanted it to kind of speak to more general ideas about what it means to grow up and navigate who you want to be and, you know, how class interplays with ethics more generally. Um, so that's why I didn't want to name an institution because I, I didn't want the book to kind of descend into, oh, well, did she portray this particular place accurately and, and was fair? Although I said it was recognisably Sydney University, the college that Michaela uh, lives at, Fairfax College, is is actually fictional. So, you, you know, you're not pointing a finger at any particular residential college in that regard, right? 
Yeah, and I think that that is kind of like not to not to be cliche about it, but I do think that's like the power of fiction that you can get people to think critically about experiences or even institutions that feel very personal. But because it's fictional, there's kind of that that extra distance that allows them to adopt a critical stance. Whereas if um, it reads like it is about their actual life, then it can feel. I don't know, violating or like people are being attacked um, and then it's harder for them to engage with it with that critical distance that you really want. You said that the book is autobiographical. So I wanted to ask you who or what inspired Michaela and Eve? That's a great question. I um, I think that both of them kind of came out of the idea that I knew I wanted to write about, which was this like big abstract idea about the difference between actually being a good person or being someone who wants to look like a good person or, or seem to be good. And so I guess Michaela and Eve kind of demonstrate two sides of that coin. Eve is, I guess, sort of wrapped up in um, what we would now call kind of virtue signaling. So she's very clever and she's got very clear ideas about what's right and wrong. And she's very interested in performing those ideas for social capital. Um, whereas Michaela is much more reserved and I kind of describe her as being like paralyzed by nuance so she is very um, interested in interpersonal relationships and she can see both sides of every conflict but that kind of has its own complexities because it's very difficult for her to ever make any moral judgments and she doesn't necessarily ever like get anything done Um, so I think the, the characters both of those characters were kind of born out of those two different approaches that I knew I wanted to demonstrate. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so did you have to do any research to bring their experiences to the page in this novel? No, I don't think I did. I didn't do any active research because, as I said, it's sort of I had just lived through university. Um, So they're kind of the sort of social groups that they're in and the kind of political conversations that they have are similar to those that I would have with my friends and they like talk the way I would talk with my friends. I guess life was my research. Oh, fantastic. Look, as I mentioned in my introduction, the book does capture much of the debate and discussions that have centred around toxic cultures at residential colleges, which have stemmed from attitudes perpetrated by privileged members of society. Now, I know you said you didn't want to point a finger at any particular institution or residential college or say that you were speaking specifically or making judgment on those, but I wanted to ask you whether you thought that anything has or will change as a result of these recent discussions and spotlighting of these behaviours. Yeah, it's such a good question. I think that that institutions are always as progressive or conservative as the people that inhabit them. And so, and I, I do think that cult, what we're seeing is genuine cultural change and new conversations and that young people are alive to these issues and discussing them in different ways. So although I don't, I can't comment on how, how quickly um, the change will come, I am optimistic that um, it will happen organically as new and people with new ideas move through these institutions. The other thing that you explore in this novel is the power in the student-teacher relationship as well as in, in a sexual context. You explore this in quite some detail. So can you tell me about Paul and your inspiration for his character? Yeah, sure. I should emphasise here that 
Paul is completely fictional. <laughs> um, yeah, my experiences at uni were like very wholesome and not novel worthy. There's just like no drama whatsoever. <laughs> but I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that um, there is a sexual relationship with a professor um, and a first year student in the novel. And what I was trying to do there was I was trying to show how our moral thinking is coded by like pre-existing narratives. So what I mean by that is that a student professor affair is a bit of a cliche and the characters in the book kind of recognise that and one character in particular, Eve, um, who I was saying before is very clear in her views of what's right and wrong, she looks at that relationship and she's very quick to say, well, that's moral and wrong because he's older, he's a man, he's an academic. For all those reasons, he's in a position of power over you. But then Eve throughout the course of the book also exerts power over the narrator in ways that are harmful to her. But her power comes from being wealthy and beautiful and having a lot of social capital. And because her type of power doesn't fit into a kind of structure like patriarchy, it's much harder for her to see that she's perhaps also abusing power. And that's not to say that her abuse of power is, you know, equivalent or that it should be dealt with in this, you know, it, it should be similarly sanctioned or anything. It's more just to point out how, how much our moral thinking is coded by kind of social structures. For me, Eve was a very interesting character to say the least. And I, I felt like I wasn't sure that I got a handle on who she was and why she was motivated to behave the way she did other than to put it down to pure ambition. And maybe that's too simplistic a way of looking at her behaviour. But I think like you, I believe that she had a much more black and white approach to morality rather than the shades of grey that Michaela had but that she also simply failed to see that her actions were wrong or could be viewed as wrong. For Michaela, someone so young who didn't know anyone else at university before she started there, her friendship with with Eve was defining, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And um, I think that it, it's been really interesting now that the novel's published and it's, sort of, it's had a, a wider readership. I've had many insightful and great male readers, but um, it is only the female readers that say to me, oh, I had a friend like Eve. And it's a lot of them <laughs> for that matter. So I think that there is something to be said for like a, a kind of female experience of finding a woman when you're young who you, like you're not sure if, you're, if you want to be with them or if you want to be them and um, you kind of structure your personality around emulating them. And, yeah, I guess that's kind of what the Michaela and Eve dynamics sort of captures. It's very love-hate, isn't it? It is very love-hate and it's very, um, I mean, I guess the sort of reductive term for it would be like toxic female friendship because they do, they, they do compete with each other and it kind of has that interesting dynamism where in the effort to bring each other down, they actually do push each other to greater heights. Like Michaela, you two are a student of philosophy and this idea of what is morally right and wrong is something that you've explored as we've just discussed in the context um, of your studies. So the thing that I really wanted to zone in on was this distinction between being wronged and being hurt, because I think it's fair to say that to Michaela, these two concepts were blurred for a while, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I think that they are blurred for a lot of people and and often there is a, a crossover. I think that, as I was saying before, the friendship with Eve is initially defined by Michaela's desire to be like her. And then her coming of age arc is kind of clarifying all of the ways that she is unlike her. 
And I think that that um, distinction between being hurt and being wronged is something that she comes to quite late in the book. And I guess what she is insisting on there is that she's not going to adopt Eve's view of right and wrong and that she's going to choose to perceive things as more complex than that. And she's saying that even though somebody might harm you, that is not kind of, that, that for her, that's not the end of the inquiry. You can't say that, oh, someone's really hurt me, therefore there's a bad, that they're a bad person. And that she's going to insist on asking lots of follow-up questions, like, you know, what was their intention when they did that? And what, what are the outcomes of that action? And has it, you know, so for example, has hurting me individually had good consequences for lots of other people? Or did they hurt me by accident or was it malicious or, you know, she's going to insist on kind of um, asking all those follow-up questions, even though they might be really hard. And even though it might mean that she's actually never in a position to definitively say whether or not she was wrong. I guess I could talk about these issues all day, but if there was one thing that you would like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? Yeah, it's a hard question, isn't it? I guess um, to your point about talking about it all day, I would like readers to kind of feel that by the end of the book issues that they um, issues or situations that they previously thought were black and white they now see as more complicated I would like to think that they would feel the way you just articulated that they could like talk about it all day and that these issues that they haven't got to the bottom of and perhaps that they previously thought they had but now they seem more complicated but also that sounds like really heavy and frustrating so I should also say I like my other ambition for the book is that it is funny and that the plot is good and people like have a nice time reading it and want to keep turning the pages. Diana, I understand that you co-wrote a musical before you wrote this novel. So I wondered if that meant that you never actually envisaged writing a novel. Yeah, that's right. So I, um, yeah, so I should say I, I did co-write a musical that was sort of um, like a small independent theatre um, production in Sydney um, at the start of 2020 it would be just a lie to suggest that that was in any way looking like a viable career. Um, But it is true that I had plans to sort of do more kind of theatre work or theatre attempts, and then they were all cancelled by um, the pandemic. So, yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that if it weren't for COVID, I wouldn't have like turned my mind to writing a novel. With all of that in mind, if you had three tips to offer aspiring authors who listen to this podcast, what would they be? So my first tip is that um, you can't like wait for permission. Um, so I think I'm probably a good counterexample. So as I just said, I wouldn't have written Love and Virtue if it weren't for the pandemic. And it was only because I found myself in this position where I just had literally nothing else to do. Um, and the whole time I was writing it, I was really embarrassed. I was like, who am I who's never written fiction in any form before? Like, who am I to write a novel that nobody's asked for and probably isn't any good? And I think that if I didn't have nothing else to do, I would have let those kind of doubts prevent me from doing it. And I think the lesson from that is that you can't wait for a pandemic and <laughs> that nobody will ever Like nobody's ever going to point at you and be like, you, you're a genius. You have to write a novel right now. So you just have to, you just have to do it anyway. And even if that means you're a bit deluded, you just got to do it. And then um, my other tip is that you, which again, I was very um, fortunate because the pandemic like gave me these circumstances on a platter, but you just have to turn up to the desk. So, you know, even if you don't feel like writing or you don't think you have anything to say, if you're not at the desk and if the Word doc- document's not in front of you, then you're not going to 
ever write anything. Diana, before we started recording, you mentioned that you were working on something else. Are you in a position to tell us anything about that? Um, yeah, it's, um, I'm not. I'm not able to talk about it super eloquently because it's still, I guess, in first draft form. But I am working on a second book for my publisher, Ultimo Press. Yeah, they're um, going to see a draft of it later this week, and it's. Um, I can tell you that it's in the same genre, in that it's like contemporary fiction set in Sydney, but it's not set at a university, um, and the characters are, are slightly older. Okay, fantastic. So, Diana, if listeners wanted to connect with you, how can they do that? I have an Instagram, which is at Diana Reed underscore. Diana, congratulations once more on your debut novel, Love and Virtue, a thoroughly thought-provoking and illuminating read. I wish you every success with it and the others that will no doubt follow. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.